0: Thank you. Um, real uh, pleasure, uh, also privilege to be invited to uh, to speak. Uh, and I have to say, I love the book of Nehemiah. I think partly because I connect with all of the building stuff. My, uh, my dad, who had he still been alive, would be 92 on Tuesday, um, was a bricklayer, time served bricklayer. And I spent the first 18 years of my life actually living in the house that my dad built, which was an enormous privilege. And he kept adding bits uh, to it. I became very familiar with how to, what the proportions were of cement, water and sand uh, in turning uh, cement as a as a young child. I spent my ministry in, in Reading and in Mealbrace uh, involved in building projects, uh, boys joys and sorrows of that. Um, and when I became an archdeacon, archdeacons in the Church of England have some responsibility for uh, church buildings. And I remember my Predecessor as Archdeacon of Carlisle, David Thompson, writing to me um, as I arrived in Carlisle, and his letter said, Welcome to the world of being a building expert. (laughs) As if suddenly, by virtue of appointment, you're meant to know the complexities of buildings. Um, And there were some tiresome bits, the kind of uh, um, uh, downspouts and all of that sort of side of uh, buildings, uh, but also some exciting bits of sharing with churches that were doing innovative. Uh, reordering some building projects, so I kind of chime in to the whole world of uh, of buildings and bricks and mortar. And, and of course, the book of Nehemiah is about a massive building project, which is to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem walls that were destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, in five eight seven BC. And um, actually, just a few years earlier. The returning exiles to Jerusalem had started to rebuild the walls. um, And then Artaxerxes stopped the project, and in came the surrounding nations and tribes, and they destroyed the walls again. Um, And it was an immense task. We catch some of the scale of it as we go through the book. We get a picture in the verses that Nick has just brought to us in chapter two um, of Nehemiah surveying the territory by night and getting to a point where he can't even get his mule between the stones that are kind of uh, littering the landscape, uh, we get just a hint of the immense scale of the task. When we get to chapter three, which I'm guessing is next week, the rebuilding starts. uh, And it starts with the rebuilding of the gates. It goes on to the rebuildings of the walls. And a project that began in Nehemiah's imagination, while he was a cupbearer to King Artaxerxes of Babylon, starts to become visible to the human eye. Um, it was probably also audible, because building is a noisy uh, uh, profession and task. Um, and suddenly, as the walls began to uh, uh, to get higher and, and higher. Uh, The walls were there for all to see, Um, and I'm hoping before long uh, we'll be able to walk into Meeting Point House and see with some pleasure (laughs) uh, Telford Minster space, actually, the walls uh, and all the decor uh, completed. But here's the point, and there's a bit of a sense in which this is a one-point sermon. Um, You'll never keep me to stick to one point, but here is the main thing that I want to say. Uh, which is that up to this point, uh, up to the start of chapter three, so including the whole of the passage that Nick has just read to us, the second half of chapter two, most of what Nehemiah does for the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem happens away from the public eye. It happens away from the public eye. Um, And I'm going to take you through this in a moment. It is unseen until chapter three. It is inaudible. We might say that everything that Nehemiah does, up to the point of the starting of the rebuilding of the gates and the walls, happens in the secret place, not in the marketplace. Does that ring true? It happens off radar. It happens below the surface. surface. In fact, we might say that what was to become public and visible and audible was birthed in a hidden and secret and invisible and inaudible place. That that's where it had its genesis, that there's an underground stream, so to speak, before the river becomes visible. Uh, That the bulb grows in the soil before it breaks through the surface. Are you following the imagery? That there's a gestation in a hidden place before the prospect, before the project sees the light of day. That's where it all began, and that's where the focus is for the entirety of chapters one and two, before the breakthrough suddenly brick is put upon brick. From the beginning of chapter three onwards. So can I just unpack that for you, and I'm very conscious of of time. Uh, What is happening out of the public gaze before the walls are rebuilt? Well firstly we have to say that the vision for the rebuilding of the walls was birthed well outside the public gaze. This huge vision, of a city transformed and restored, began in a very private conversation between uh, uh, Nehemiah and Hananiah and a few few companions who had traveled a thousand miles from Jerusalem to see their friend and family member uh, in in Susa in Babylon. Um, And it was a conversation in which Hanani described the disgrace that the returning exiles felt as they looked around the broken-down, tumble-down state of Jerusalem, that something was birthed in the privacy of a private conversation. It is astonishing, isn't it, what can come from a solitary, private, hidden conversation. The whole vision was birthed in that hidden, private place. And then as we were reflecting on just a couple of days ago, Nehemiah weeps and he prays and he fasts in the secret place. Um, And we're told that he first spoke to Hanani in the month of Kislev, December we think. um, He didn't uh, make his request of Artaxerxes to be able to rebuild the walls until the month of Nisan, which is four months later. So here's four months of plowing into prayer, plowing into weeping, plowing into fasting. I wonder did the Lord Jesus himself have Nehemiah? Did Nehemiah pop into his mind when he was preaching the Sermon on the Mount and said, When you pray, go into your room, close the door, pray to your Father who is in secret? Because all the praying and the fasting happened. Off radar, not seen by any, not playing to any audience, not seen by any other people. And then did you notice the arrow prayer a couple of weeks ago, uh, or was it even last week, when um, Nehemiah goes into the presence of Artaxerxes as the trusted cupbearer? Um, and before he utters his request, will you give me permission, leave of absence? Uh, to go and restore the walls of Jerusalem, uh, the text says, then I pray to the God of heaven. Then I pray to the God of heaven. That hidden arrow of prayer, the kind we pray all the time in crisis situations um, before he dared to push the boat out and asked for permission. All the weeping and praying and fasting that went on under the radar. And in those months of weeping and praying and fasting, his call emerged in the secret place. As so many of us can give testimony, no doubt, to our call to acts of ministry in the Lord's service that very rarely begin in the public space. They generally begin in our minds and in our hearts, well and truly hidden from uh, view. And I think there was something gestating here that became so that Nehemiah not only carried the vision of a restored Jerusalem, but he began to have a sense that God's call was on his life for a particular act of service and ministry for the accomplishment and achievement of that vision. And seemingly he carried it all of those months that even when he arrived, he'd done his thousand mile trip uh, and arrived in uh, jerusalem verse 12 i had not told anyone what god had put in my heart to do for jerusalem it was still there in the secret place but by golly it was growing there under the radar and then as i gave reference to earlier when he gets to jerusalem he spends his time surveying the extent of the of the devastation of the walls and the gates of jerusalem not in the full light and visibility of the day, but under cover of darkness. I think this is all adding up, isn't it? All of these things are happening off radar and under cover of darkness, not playing to any audience, Uh, image-conscious 21st century. Let's get this into our minds and in our hearts that the real things that matter (laughs) so often happen without image, (laughs) they happen hidden from public view, and so he went at night. We're told twice that he travelled around the walls twice at night. Why night? I think he didn't want to draw attention to himself. I think he wanted uh, time to see at close quarters. At night, you've got to get right up to things to see what's really there, Um, And I think he needed time to pray as he walked and as he rode around. He needed time to contemplate and time to listen to God. And then when the opposition starts, which, by the way, friends, let's let's not lose sight of this, that wherever there's any genuine work of God, there will be opposition. Does that ring true? Let's not be taken by surprise, (laughs) When the enemy suddenly uh, pokes his head above the parapet, when things start to go wrong, when we start to fall out with one another, uh, believe me, these things will happen wherever there's a genuine work of God. Um, And when the opposition starts, what does Nehemiah say? To Sanballat and and Tobiah and Geshem, whatever they're called, (laughs) Uh, these local leaders of the surrounding area, he says the God of heaven will give us success. Isn't it wonderful that we can stand up, even when we're facing opposition, with a confidence that the God of heaven will give us success? And where did that confidence come from for uh, Nehemiah? It came from a, a deep, hidden growing sense of faith and confidence that God was in this. Um, Are you you following me here? Uh, That The vision came in the secret place. The call came in the secret place. The surveillance happened at night, under cover of darkness. That the confidence that God was in this wasn't just read from the pages of a piece of paper— it grew in his heart. It became a conviction that even if all the territory around him was opposed to this work of God, that actually the God of heaven will give us success. Now, I could expand that and would probably love to do so, but time is is short. But, but and maybe contradict me if you think I'm wrong. But I think everything that happens in Nehemiah chapter 1 and everything that happens in Nehemiah chapter 2 up to verse 17, where he begins to share the vision with some of the returned exiles, happens under the radar, not in the marketplace, but in the private and secret place. And so what I've pondered is, Lord, how does this apply to us? (laughs) Um, uh, the, the first of the returning exiles, we might say, uh, the small remnants of us who are the core group for the planting of the church at Telfordminster. Um, what, what is the Lord saying to us uh, from a Nehemiah who invested in significant things under the radar, out of the public view? And I'm sure that if we were in conversation, you would have lots that you would want to say. But let me just offer you four thoughts very briefly. I think, firstly, the message that we need to to take a real hold of is that we make sure, us on this screen and a handful of others who are part of our core group, that we invest in the secret inner life as the very heart of our personal discipleship. Give me a thumbs up if that rings true for you. That we don't just tell other people to invest in the inner life, but we are investing secretly out of the public gaze into those things which are of the inner life. I wonder if you've ever cracked a nut. Um, I only ever do it at Christmas. <laughs> and I go, I go looking for the the, the nutcrackers, you know, and they're always at the back of the of, of the Couple recovered, aren't they, or somewhere, or you can't find them from the previous Christmas. But you've taken a walnut out of your pile of Christmas nuts and you've crapped it. And that moment of total disappointment when there's nothing inside. Or what's inside is black and wizened and decayed. It looks fine on the outside but there's nothing on the inside. And the Apostle Paul says, doesn't he, in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, when he's speaking about love, he says we can have all the outward gifts. We can speak in tongues, we can operate in all these visible areas. But he said, if we haven't got love in our hearts, in the hidden secret place, and it's the rudest of metaphors, He says, we're like clashing gongs and clanging cymbals. What did Shakespeare have a character say in Macbeth? We're sound and fury signifying nothing. We're a walnut with nothing on the inside. And so I do wonder if there's a reminder from Nehemiah's experience to you and to me of the importance of investing in the inner life as the place from which most things of real value in our outward discipleship are brought to birth. Um, and invest means the application of energy, time and commitment. But isn't there reminding us to invest in the health of our souls? Yeah. In the quality of our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, in our prayer lives? Are we investing in our knowledge of the scriptures for the renewal and transformation of our minds? I'm horrified, here's an aside, I'm horrified by the ignorance of the things of the Bible in our churches. I'm surprised when I meet Christian disciples of decades of walking with the Lord who don't know the word, Because they've not invested in the things of the scriptures. Are we investing in holiness in the inward parts? Are we investing in love and forgiveness and generosity? Are we investing in a deepening love of Jesus and a greater openness to the person and the work of the Holy Spirit? Friends, discipleship will always need to be public and visible. But I offer you the deep conviction of my heart that mature discipleship is birthed and nurtured in the secret place, out of public view, with no audience in front of us, and that we will do well to invest in that place. Okay, does that sound right? And here's a second thought Do we from Nehemiah's experience? need to build firm foundations in the inner place of the church's life, not just our individual discipleship but in the collective life of Telford Minster and, and much of our life as a church will be like the walls of Jerusalem as they were re- being rebuilt, It'd be visible and audible and rightly so, that's why we're about this venture. But you know as well as I do that every building needs good foundations. And foundations are nearly always, nearly always hidden from view. So we need to be as committed in Telford Minster to putting the hidden foundations of our church in place as we are as committed as we are to the visible (laughs) superstructure. and certainly the image of our church, that we need to put as much investment and time and energy into that as that which is visible. And Jesus reminded us, didn't he, in the Sermon on the Mount again, of what happens when houses and, dare I say, churches are built on sand sand without firm foundations. Friends, we're going to need good biblical theological foundations. And we're going to need to build them and reinforce them and invest in them over the years and over the decades. We're going to need strong spiritual foundations in our prayer life, in our worship and in our intercession. We're going to need immovable character commitments for the things of truth and the call to holiness. To humility and love and generosity of spirit in all things. And we're going to need missional foundations so that mission permeates everything that we do. But our entire purpose is to be turned outwards however much it costs us, however much it demands of us. Because there's a needy, broken world out there. And I'm willing, if you are, to take up my cross and follow Jesus, who gives everything for the lost. And we're going to need a missional DNA in Telford Minster that is so sadly lacking in so many of our churches that live simply for themselves and their own perpetuation. We're not here for ourselves. We're here for a lost and broken world. And we're here that the kingdoms of of this world might become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And that's the transformation, surely. Let's, friends, invest in these foundations. Let's never think it's all about the superstructure. And certainly let's never think it's all about the image. Pray God, people will never say of us, we're sound and fury, but we signify nothing. And that leads me to a third thing that I want to say. And I do wonder if God will speak this word directly to some of us this afternoon or to some of our number, that we will need to listen carefully to those whose calling is to live in the secret place. Does that make sense to you? Because I wonder whether God will call, I think he will, some of our number to inhabit the secret place as their main calling. Uh, That the place in which God asks them to dwell and to tabernacle and to put down firm roots, because that's their gifting and that's God's calling upon their life. And it's very easy in some church cultures, and I dare to say it could easily be our church culture, that neglects the quiet that ignores those who are slow to speak, that doesn't spot those who don't push themselves forward. Uh, sadly, there are church cultures that who neglect the old, who perforce have been taken into the deeper recesses of a hidden life. And yet I think we neglect at our peril those who God has called into the secret life of prayer and listening and study because maybe in them in the quietest amongst us those who God has called to tabernacle in the secret place will be the deepest wisdom to us that it's from their lips that will come the word in season not the Kevin Roberts who can't shut themselves up in a meeting you know Um, And the person whose solitary sentence or word is packed with wisdom that comes from time spent in the secret place. Are you with me? It's their lips who will tell us the truth that we need to hear. Um, In fact, I want to go so far as to say, please God, give us, amongst our number, those who will take the place of the monastics in the course of the church's history, those who've been called out of the busy world into the secret world, the cloistered world, in order to pray for the world. That's what monasticism is at its best. It's a retreat in order to pray for the church in the world and for the greater coming of the new creation. Lord, is God calling you? And I ask you, is God calling you into that monastic call, into the secret place, for the benefit of those of us who God is calling to minister in the monastic place, in the in the in the market uh, place rather? I'll leave that question with you, but we may just pray into that in a few moments. And I said I had four. Um, the perfect sermon really has three points, of course. Um, But here we go, here's a fourth one. Is God asking us to prepare in the secret place for mission in the marketplace? Is God calling us to prepare in the secret place for mission in the marketplace? Because when you think of it, real mission happens most often hidden from view. Some of it's about posters in our windows and campaigns and all of these things which I don't disparage at all. But the relationships that we build with our neighbours and friends and colleagues are hidden from view. And believe me, that's the heart of mission, is what the relationships we're building in order to share with the Lord Jesus. The prayer that we pray for our road, for our communities, for our workplace, for our places of leisure, are probably never heard by anybody else, it's just we and the Lord in our private place. The integrity which is so essential to the mission of the church is something that's brokered in our inner lives. Our battle with the spiritual Sambalats and Tobias and um, whatever his name is, Goshen, um, our battle with the powers of the dark world and spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So often is done uh, under cover of darkness. So here it is, and I'm nearly there. Here it is. There's a hidden life to live and a hidden battle to engage in if ever we're to be effective in turning back the tide of unbelief and seeing the kingdom of God come in greater measure in the town of Telford. And I wonder whether we've yet surveyed the spiritual land, friends, as well as we ought to have done. I wonder if it's an ongoing task, much of it still before us. I wonder whether we've released the prophets and the frontline intercessors, who, like Nehemiah, will walk the devastated spiritual territory of Telford and tell us what they see. And start to tell us who are the Sanballats and who are the Tobias and who are the Goshans. This is hard spiritual territory, not because it's hard spiritual territory. Not because it's different to another place. It's hard spiritual territory because the enemy is alive and at work to an agenda that we've got to recognise and unearth. And that's going to happen as we walk around the broken stones of Telford at night. It's a, it's a, a task, I think, still to be done in the secret place if we're to see the kingdom of God come in the marketplace. But I'm going to finish with this the god of heaven will give us success how about that but the god of heaven the god of heaven will give us success and we're not naive about the forces that are ranged against us we're not naive about the extent of the challenge that faces us but this is always god's work before ever it's our work if it was down to us Then we may as well pack in now. In fact, if we think it's down to us, then the Lord's got to undermine that pride. Because we are at best weak and earthen vessels. But God will give us success because it's His work before it's our work. He's more for us than we can begin to imagine and he can do it, and pray God, with a compliant, willing, dependent people, he will do it. And we will see more people, pray God, more and more people, uh, at the very name of Jesus, beginning to bow their knees, and ever more tongues beginning to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. But for those days to come, He needs a church and a people who are as faithful and vigilant in the secret place as they are in the marketplace.